Thanks so much. All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, like Jess said, welcome. If it's your first Sunday, a special welcome to you, but welcome back to the rest of you who, uh, who call, might call this home. Uh, we are in a series right now in the um, books of First and Second Samuel. So it's going to be one series, two books of, get my clicker to work here, uh, two books of the Old Testament, uh, kind of that smack dab middle of Old Testament narrative in the Old Testament. And um, we're a few weeks in on what will be about a seven or eight month series. So it's a longer section of scripture. Together, I think two books together, I think, is 55 chapters. So uh, decent length for sure. Uh, one of the things we've been doing uh, by way of introduction and introducing this series uh, is to help you all think through how to interpret the Bible on a broad scale, but a more specific scale of how do you read Old Testament narrative as though it's part of a greater story? And how do we ultimately see it as part of like one puzzle piece and forward looking in the way that the Bible seems to suggest in many ways that, that it is. And one of the language, uh, I guess I was going to say word, but I guess sentences or phrases we've used uh, is um, the idea of substance and shadow because you see that uh, conveyed in the New Testament book of Hebrews and Colossians I think as well in other places. The idea being that the Old Testament is a shadow of the New Testament. And the Old Testament comes first. And so the idea is that the New Testament is kind of casting a shadow backwards into the story. And so when we read it, it actually helps. And this is why the Bible is so different from normal books like novels that we read. We actually kind of read it backwards. Or we might read it front to back, but we at least interpret it back to front. And so I just threw this thing together just to convey that. Uh, But also the complexity of this. Because when you deal in shadows, sometimes... Things resemble New Testament truth. Sometimes they contrast with New Testament truth because shadows don't always look like the things that are casting them, right? Sometimes they do. And then sometimes it's kind of in the middle. Sometimes uh, we, the shadow is a lesser picture of the greater version of something that Jesus would later do and kind of, you know, uh, fulfill. Because sometimes the shadow is like, yeah, that's kind of like a tree, but it's kind of also not. And So it's complicated because all three of these angles are present sometimes at the same time in an Old Testament story. We might say, this reminds me of Jesus, but this is the opposite of him. But this is kind of like a whisper of him. It's kind of close, but not not quite. And sometimes in a story, you have all three things going on. And so it's a call for nuance and the guidance of the gospel. So the gospel always gets the final word on a passage not a particular methodology, even if the methodology is the right one. And that kind of makes sense. If it doesn't, that's okay. Hang tight. We'll kind of keep explaining this as we go. Uh, but just understand that, that realities and shadows, substances and shadows go together in the Bible and that these stories speak beyond themselves. They're not islands. They, uh, in fact, if we treat them as islands, they kind of instantly just shrink into maybe a moral lesson or, or an ethic or something a little bit powerless, you know, like that, much lesser than what it's actually trying to do. Um, So today we're going to look at the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, The the Ark comes up later in this book as well, but this is kind of the big story or section of uh, the the Samuels where we get um, a a lot of it. And so we're kind of going to treat it all as one section. Yes, that does say three chapters. I haven't done this much in one sermon in a while. We'll see how this goes. Um, But we're going to shrink down the first two chapters to a short summary and then read an abridged version of chapter 6. But with that said, please, if it helps you to follow along, open your Bibles uh, to 1 Samuel 4 and 5 as well. Feel free to kind of skim as I'm summarizing, and then uh, you can follow along on screen when I get to chapter 6 as as well. 
All right, so um, chapters four and five. Uh, basically, I have like four kind of main, main points here, mountaintops. At uh, this point in Israel's history, and for much of these two books of the Bible, the Philistines are Israel's main enemy. So think Goliath. If you know who he is, we'll talk about his story soon in chapter 17. So earlier it was the Egyptians for Israel who were the problem. Later in Judges it was the Moabites and other nations. Now in this section of scripture it's the Philistines. Later it's going to be the Assyrians and Babylonians. And so they, it's just this constant kind of mantra and cycle of Israel um, having other nations and people who are oppressing them, enslaving them, serving as a thorn in their side, things like that. The Philistines are in focus for these books primarily. Others too, but, but primarily. So in 1 Samuel 4, uh, it, it's the story of one battle that Israel has with the Philistines. And in this battle, Israel is getting beaten back pretty badly. And so they decide... Let's bring out the Ark of the Covenant as a kind of good luck charm or a secret weapon to help them turn the tide of the battle. Now, the Ark um, was a fixture in the temple that God commanded Israel to build in Old Testament times. It looked like this, roughly. Uh, It was a large, rectangular-shaped box, gold-plated, with a cover called the mercy seat on top. Uh, It would eventually remain inside the inner sanctuary of the temple, but that's not built yet. Only the tabernacle is, which is kind of a tent-like version of it. And so the ark is a bit more nomadic at this time, as strange as that uh, might might sound. Um, Inside the ark were three things. So the contents of the ark is important as well. Uh, So I have some AI art for you here, for those of you who like AI art. Uh, ignore the cherubs, maybe, on the corners. Not sure what they're doing there. Um, but in, inside the ark are primarily three things. One, Moses' brother's Aaron's staff that miraculously budded at one point, put out flowers and almonds. Uh, that's inside. This is, that story's in the book of Numbers, if you want to read about it. Uh, there is a golden jar of manna, which was the bread that God provided Israel in the desert earlier in their story from the dew to provide them food to survive on before they got to the promised land. So there's a jar of that. And the third thing is the Ten Commandments. There's two stone tablets of the law, which is kind of, the, we call it the Decalogue. It's this um, ten-point summary, basically, of the moral law section of Israel's law in the, the Old Testament. Most people know what the Ten Commandments are, at least kind of by... Uh, you know, rough reference, but anyway. So those three things, uh, the staff that budded, the manna bread in a gold jar, and the Ten Commandments. Might sound kind of random. In one sense, it kind of is. Um, we'll check a few boxes, hopefully for clarity, a little bit later on and, and make, some, uh, make some comments on that. All right, back to the story, though. What happens next, after Israel brings the ark out, thinking this will work, uh, is kind of unexpected. The ark plan doesn't work, or maybe kind of is expected. Maybe you saw it coming. Uh, Israel gets routed in battle anyway. The Philistines capture the ark, interestingly. They bring it back home. Eli, the priest's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, we read more about them last week, both die in battle. Eli, the priest, when hearing about his son's death and the ark's capture, falls backwards out of his chair, breaks his neck, and dies. And then Phineas's wife, who was pregnant, as she's giving birth, names the boy Ichabod, which means the glory has departed from Israel, and then she dies in childbirth. So it's all this big, horrible, multi-layered tragedy at this point. But right when you think the Philistines have the upper hand, there's one final twist After they bring the ark back to their camp, they put it into their god, Dagon's temple, 
but they keep waking up each morning to Dagon being tipped over face down on the ground. And then a few mornings later, his hands and feet are just miraculously broken off. Um, and then they start getting tumors. The people do. The Philistines do. They get cancer. Everyone's getting cancer, these large tumors. And they're like, we don't want this thing either. Uh, and so they devise a plan to send it back. In fact, at the end of chapter 5, it says, the Lord's hand was against this city, which might be one of the bigger understatements of this section of First Samuel. So the Philistines devise a plan to get it out of here. It's cursing us. Uh, and then we pick up in chapter 6. So I'll read a, an abridged section from this chapter before we um, start to dive into some details here. So verse 2. The Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, If you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will all be healed, and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, What guilt offering should we send him? They replied, Five gold tumors and five gold rats. Of course, right? According to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. So they did this. Did I go too fast there? So they... Sorry, guys, I got sidetracked. Where are we? There we go. All right, so they did this. They took two cows and hitched them to a cart and penned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with it the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley, and when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the ark and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold objects and placed them on a large, the large rock. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this and then returned to Ekron. The large rock on which Levites set the ark is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Okay, clear as mud, right? Barely have to preach it. No, we will. Uh, maybe some of this evoked images of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Anybody? A um, couple of you. Uh, I'll spare you the, uh, the movie clip of the Nazis whose face melted off when they looked inside the ark. But this is the part of the Bible that some of this, you know, the inspiration for that part of the movie uh, comes from. Maybe more crossover with the Bible than, than you thought. Of course, there's tons of non-crossover as well uh, with that movie. But the big thing to see, I think, and, and I'll bridge here into my, what I want to start with with you guys. The big thing to see is that the ark is good but also awful. Uh, both are happening. Both are true. The ark is good in one sense because it's from God, and yet it's an awful thing bringing a curse with it impartially 
to Israel, God's people, and the Philistines at the exact same time. And so what I want to start with today, um, and uh, we often do this with Old Testament narrative, in fact, I think Spencer did this last week with chapter 3, but is to look at this from a human and divine angle. So whenever we do this, what we mean by this is um, the human side would be, how is a story about us, or is there a lesson here? Is this somehow our story? Uh, If we put ourselves in the place of some of the characters, uh, like the Israelites and or the Philistines, uh, what biblical truth does that kind of like allow to sprout up? Uh, from the ground that we can uh, kind of harvest, so to speak. Um, And then we're going to twist it around and say, how is this story not about us? How is this actually more about Jesus? How is he the main point and hero here and kind of um, one who takes on the imagery of this passage and would later fulfill it uh, on on greater greater levels? So we'll get there in in, in a few minutes. All right, the first thing I want to say, though, about the human side uh, and there's a few, I guess you'd call them lessons if you want, but at least a few points of theology that we see. And um, I think they kind of come from the surprises. Uh, in fact, um, if you're new to Bible reading or even if you're not, often when you see surprises in a, in a Bible story, that's where the theology is. Maybe not exclusively, but a lot of times it's in the surprises or the twists or the ironies or the left turns or the things that you would not expect to happen. And I think that's what you see is, and I already kind of talked about this, um, but in the first point, which is God does not take sides, at least in the way that we think. Uh, That's part of the shock of this story is why are the Israelites, God's people, being routed in battle, especially when they have the ark there, which is a symbol of God's presence? And why did 70 Israelites die while looking into the ark later in the story. It's kind of that final twist, right? You think, oh, the ark's coming back by itself. This uh, wonderful shrine or object that, that symbolized God's presence is coming home and then 70 people die because they look inside. It's just this final like, reminder that, no, it's not quite, it's not quite what you think. Uh, there's still a lesson here and a problem. And so the fact that the ark is a problem then for both Israel and Philistia and maybe you noticed in the, in the reading, to Philistia's leaders and commoners. So remember when the diviners said that? Like, the same curse has befallen rulers and non-rulers alike. If there's no partiality. It's not like picking a certain kind of person based on their ethnicity or how good they are or bad they are or what their status is in the country. It's just completely and in every way indiscriminate. The fact that that's happening sends us all kinds of important theological messages. The biggest of which is that both people groups have a God problem. So amidst their ongoing physical war with each other, the problem of the ark tells us that it's really their enmity with and war with God that serves as their biggest problem. This is classic, classic Bible right here. A physical thing tells a spiritual story. A physical event, though important on some level, is accompanying and pointing to a greater version of it. And so in this case, the physical war isn't really about the physical war, or it's not the ultimate one. It's suggesting and reflecting and pointing to the war that all fallen human beings are in with their creator. And the reality is, in this story, they, and and I mean that on a very broad scale or level, they, the people, can't be close to him in their sin without getting tumors and dying. This last question in 
in chapter 6, verse 20, it encapsulates so much about this story. Yes, the story goes on, and in some sense we'll keep talking about the ark a little bit, but I think the author here includes this because it encapsulates what is really the main point of this passage, and it doesn't have to do with the Philistines. The question is, who can stand before a holy God? In desperation, with open hands, it's like they're questioning everything. I thought that we kind of could as Israel. What's going on? What happened? Why are we going backwards here? Why are the Philistines even able to capture it? Why didn't they instantly die? Of course, a curse comes later. That's part of the point. But these questions you can just see uh, filling their minds. It just doesn't seem to add up. But that's the question of the passage and really the question of the Bible, the problem of the whole of the Bible, really. This is a microcosm of the greater question is who can stand before God? How can we eventually stand before him? How can we draw near? How can he draw near to us? God is in focus uh, in, in this capacity. So there is a desperate need then for someone to remedy that problem. And even for Israel, the, the keepers of the law. Uh, more on all of that later. Okay, second thing. Uh, is the folly of making God into a magic pill. Uh, God is not our good luck charm. He doesn't exist just so we can sprinkle a little bit of, you know, him on all of our ambitions, hopes, and plans so he might bless them and so that we can just go on our merry way without him and have our best life now. And that's not how it works, how he works, how the Christian God is. Uh, we've already talked about this with Hannah in chapter 1, if you're here for that. And in this week's passage, it's similar, a little bit, a little bit um, flipped or, or different, but similar, in that we see God ultimately does not mix with if-then spirituality. God does not mix with if-then spirituality. And so they're saying, if we bring out the ark to our battle, what we're already doing with the works of our hands, then God will bless us. So put the emphasis on we in that statement, not just if then. If we bring out the ark, then God will bless us, is, is the mentality. Um, that doesn't work, right? Now what makes this complicated is that, that in Old Testament times, you know, uh, and this story exists during th those times, of course, God did covenant with Israel in an if-then kind of way. He said in many, many and various ways, if you keep my laws then you will be blessed. You'll stay in the land and we'll be able to dwell sort of close together. But God did this knowing full well that it was impossible for his people to maintain, to show that humanity's desire for such a treatment of him as God would need to be exposed as flawed and so that it could then be followed up by something different and much better. That is Christ crucified alone. So, the broader principle here would be salvation is not something we fight alongside God to accomplish. Salvation is not something we cooperate with God on, nor is sanctification or the journey we take as Christians post-conversion. We don't bring God out onto the battlefield of our lives so he can help us out a little bit here and there with some advice and so that he can join our fight after we already start it and after we have already accomplished a little bit of it. The story is meant to teach us that when the ark is manipulated or cooperated with, bad things happen. But when it's left to itself, it fights the enemy single-handedly. 
That's what this story is meant to teach us. When the ark is left to do everything on its own, the Philistines get tumors. It's actually fighting the Philistines in a way that they couldn't before. And so the correlation there spiritually would be like our sin gets tumors. The ultimate enemy of our souls, the devil, is fought on the basis of the work of the hands of God himself, not by us. If it's ever through us, it's always him. Uh, if it's ever somehow in, the, in what we do and what we say, it's always him. Not a 50-50 handshake, but it's always him using us or completely going around us to accomplish his purposes single-handedly. So that's the broader idea, but we also might wrestle with lesser forms of this as well in the day-to-day. Uh, I was talking to Leah Miller about this um, last week, so some of these are from her, but uh, things like, if I pray enough for good weather for a backyard barbecue with my non-Christian friends who I want to show the love of Christ to, then God will for sure part the clouds. Or, if I'm a good Christian, then I'll experience perfect hope and victory over sexual sin. Or, if I obey God's word, then God will heal me of my chronic illnesses. And it's just not true. It's not that simple. I mean, he may still, but not, it, but not because of the if in the first part, the if clause on the first part of, of that, uh, those sentences. God is not our good luck charm. He does not meet us on our battlefields, endorsing or cooperating with the works of our hands if we just recite the right Christian incantation. But instead, he fights alone for us and then makes his victory sufficient so we can join him on the battlefields of his victory post-battle and be close to him that way and in that way have his victory shared with us. That's a very, very better and different way of thinking in a way that the New Testament um, resoundingly picks up on and says that's the way we should think. And lest we think this is not that important, this is a pretty messy, big historical deal, isn't it? Death, cancer, awful things. Like, bad theology is awful. Like, the, the if-thens bring massive, massive, massive problems. You know, and so, like, this is this big issue that actually you could, you could say, and I'll get ahead of myself a little bit here, you could say that us just even, try, even right now trying to sort through the wrong way to think about salvation and God and the right way, we can't always get it right, even if we know what it is, you know? And so even then the remedy is for someone even past all of that to be enough for us when our theology gets whacked sometimes. There's actually a lot of good news on that too. All right, third human thing though before we, we move on, uh, and that is it's no coincidence that the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from Sinai are accompanying in the ark this cursing of the people because the Bible says crystal clearly in the New Testament, the law kills. The law kills. So any type of I must do this or become this or change this about me in order to be and stay saved and close to God or blessed or to be a good Christian kills you. It does not give you life. Uh, Paul continues here, actually the, op- the alternate side of this uh, sentence or clause is the law kills, but the Spirit of God gives life. The Spirit of God gives life. And actually, this really fits well with the ark because just a second ago I said the ark was good, but it was awful. You know, something can be good but kill you. Something can be good but not last. And such is the case with the law. It's good, 
there's a goodness from it because it tells a part of the story and inherent within these things are a level of righteousness that we, any, almost anyone would say is a good thing, but it can kill you at the same time. So just because the Bible calls it good in some places doesn't mean it lasts forever or that it can't kill you. Uh, and the ark is a beautiful picture of this. A good thing, a holy thing, a God, thing God wanted made, yet it brings a curse. And so we need something else altogether different. That's the point. This is like a very Old Testament story and how it portrays the state of affairs, not just for Israel, but the entire human race. The law and all its trappings, being mediated to God by what we do, seeking to manipulate God around our religious effort, thinking we're favored by him because of something inside of us pre-existing. All of that and more brings death, sadness, despair, and more sin, not less, especially the sin of arrogance. So again, what is needed then is something that would come as the complete opposite of all of those ways of thinking and living to replace it. Uh, In other words, I think in this passage you could say something like, um, we need a different kind of ark. Like even if you know nothing about the Bible or this section of scripture and you're just kind of going off your feelings, maybe that's what you thought. Like this ark thing is a problem. We need something else. And if you're thinking that, you're kind of on the same level. That's maybe a, a basic version of what I just said, but not any less. That's, that's exactly the point. We need a different kind of ark with different kinds of contents. We ultimately need peace with God, and we are no help ourselves. Uh, I was talking to um, a, a pastor friend of mine in West St. Paul. Some of you guys know Josh Williams. He's actually preached here before. Um, about this, and we were just kind of reflecting on this, how a lot of people think Christianity and a a pastor's job uh, sometimes is to fix people. Like, it's my job to fix fix people. And it's not it at all, actually. That's a very moralistic idea. Um, Our job, and, and widening out for us too, of course, the problem is actually we don't have peace with God. As Christians, we're trying to reconcile sinners with their creator. That's not fixing that's like a different plane. That's like, we're not trying to like tweak your life a little bit here. These aren't TED Talks. This isn't like some motivational speech. We're, we're trying to talk about the biggest problem any of you will ever have in your life. Whether you realize it or not. That's partly what this might be pronouncing. Maybe you didn't realize it even. That's fine. But not, maybe now you do. The Bible is actually more concerned about your peace with God than your physical peace or any other smaller problems. Though he does care about everything, of course in our life too, and meets us in that way. But there is a hierarchy of needs. We talk about that sometimes, right? Who said, who had a hierarchy of needs things? Is that Maslow? So there's a hierarchy of needs in the Bible too. Um, And I don't know if it lines up at all with Maslow. I should, let's talk later, Mindy. Um, but But the point is, there's a hierarchy of problems and a hierarchy of needs. And getting that messed up is super problematic for us, for our happiness and joy for how we read the Bible, what we glean from stories like this, right? Because if, if you flip that around and God's not, reckon, peace with God's not your biggest thing, you're not going to be looking for that. And if you're not looking for that, you're going to get something else. You're going to replace it with some other kind of problem. And even if it is a problem, it's not your biggest. And then we kind of get all kinds of wacky theology from that. So we need peace with God. And we are no help ourselves. And so for that, we turn to the divine or spiritual side of this passage and ask the question, 
how is this story about Jesus? And I, I think when you do this, when you ask this question, you see that hope is woven into this story from a number of surprising angles. And um, at first it might not be readily apparent, but all you have to do to see it is to ask the right questions and to expect to see the right things. Uh, like Augustine said in the fourth century, the New Testament is hidden in the old, and the old is made accessible by the new. So applying that idea to 1 Samuel 4-6, to the question we should ask is, how is the New Testament hidden in 1 Samuel 4-6? to That's one of the best questions you can ask interpretationally, period, about this passage. And to quote from or the, the second half of this then, how are we truly accessing God's intended meaning here by way of the end of the Bible? How, how is the New Testament helping us to access proper meaning, what God always ultimately intended, that is his son, in any verse of the Bible, any story, how are we accessing that, allowing the end of the book to help us access it? The idea is we're locked out from it. If we don't see Jesus in these stories, we're locked out. Like we're outside of, of the house, outside of the door, and we're knocking at best. But, but Jesus lets us in. Uh, he discloses mysteries. He unlocks doors. He pulls up veils, the Bible says. He opens the eyes of the blind. That's not just a physical miracle of Jesus doing something great for blind people. That's actually a parable of now I can see Scripture. This is what Luke 24 says. Uh, when their eyes were opened, these guys weren't blind, but it's blind seeing language. Their eyes were open and they could see that all of the Bible was about Jesus, whereas beforehand they didn't realize it. If you guys have read that before. So blindness is not really about blindness. It's about seeing these stories for what they, they really are. So again, with Augustine's help here, with reason, with the Bible's help, ultimately. Um, actually, to quote Sally, Sally Lloyd-Jones as well, how does this story whisper his name, Christ's name, especially against the backdrop of so much darkness and death and cancer and curse? Well, the answer is to that question in many ways. Uh, for starters... He is the true Hophni and Phinehas. He is the ultimate priestly son who died on the battlefield, judged by the Father in our place so that we can go home and live. He's also the true Ichabod, whose glory departed him when he became a cursed criminal on the cross, who became nothing so that we can have hope to share in God's glory and not be crushed by it. He's the rock that was able to support the ark, He's the place where the heavy curse of the law and how it exposed our sin and hopeless imperfection would come to bear all its weight. That we might be alleviated from its exposing gaze and instead covered by his unconditional love. He's the true and better ark itself, given over to Gentiles, crucified at their hands, placed in the heart of the enemy's camp, but who through his death deals a heavy blow to the enemy of sin single-handedly, and he was then taken down from the cross and placed in a tomb. He has the Philistines' guilt offerings, the gold tumors and rats that represented the shape the curse took in Ekron. In the same way, he's the one who became like the thing that cursed us, 
the one who became sin, our great curse, that in him we might be saved and become the righteousness of God. He's the true and better contents of the ark. He's the new manna bread, broken and given for us, that we might never hunger again. He's the staff of Aaron, who died, but then miraculously budded and came to life three days later and bore the fruit of salvation. He's the new law that mediates us to God, but not a law of conditions or to-dos, but a law of love, a gospel of peace that, as Ephesians 2 says, sets aside the old commandments with his bloodied body. And finally, he's the one who answers the impossible question of who can stand before the Lord, doing so on our behalf as our advocate, so that in him we have God's Son himself saying, this one is with me, let me die for him, and let him live. See, there's a reason why Christians don't worry about an Ark of the Covenant anymore. Times have changed. The covenants have changed. The temple and all its lawful trappings have been destroyed. Um, I don't know how much you guys have read the Old Testament before, but it's likely at some point you've asked that question uh, or maybe wondered, is why don't we do all this stuff anymore? There's so much in the Old Testament that we don't build or gather around or do or observe um, we can eat bacon now, you know? Like, on, on a, maybe that's the best news you heard all day. That's great. Um, but, you know, we don't question these things. Like, things are different. When Jesus comes into the world, he says, Moses did this, but now I'm doing this. That's not an and, that's a but, you know? Um, I, I'm fulfilling, but by fulfilling, I'm placing with my body. And so, I'm guessing none of you, wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, have wondered, why isn't the Ark of the Covenant at Hiawatha Church? This is such an important part of Israel's worship, especially once a year to throw blood on the mercy seat and atone for the sins of the people. Well, it's because Jesus is here. And he eradicates the old, in a sense. The, the, the temple is destroyed. And all of the things that, that were in it, and that's actually a good thing. Jesus actually, before his death, talks about one day this temple is going to come down to the ground, and that's not a bad thing because I'm the new temple now. And I'm replacing all of the contents of the temple with temple with my fleshly body, my beating heart, and my hands will be pinned to a cross in love for you. And so now, instead of carrying around an ark with the Ten Commandments, we carry around in our body the death of Jesus, the new ark of the gospel that houses no obligatory rules, just one-way sacrificial love, the manna bread of his body, and the almonds of resurrection hope. That's what we get to do, to quote Paul. Uh, and also then, this is important too in terms of how the gospel flows like a river from all that we just talked about. When you read a story like this, instead of worrying about getting tumors in punishment for our sin, we put away fear because Jesus already took the blows of this passage. So it's important to understand that this is not a do the right thing or else you get tumors passage. That would be to moralize it. This is a, you already have gotten tumors, like the Philistines passage. And that's another way to look at it. But the good news is that Jesus has gotten in the way of that curse and healed you from the inside out with his blood by taking on the tumors himself 
and dying in your place and making that event then the only thing that ultimately matters anymore for us Christians. I mean, a lot of things matter, for sure, but that's the ultimate thing that matters. Remember what uh, Jesus says to Martha in Luke 10? How many things ultimately matter to Jesus? Quiz question. One thing. Actually, it's the only time in the Bible Jesus corrects himself that I can think of. He first says, Martha, Martha, only a few things matter. And he says, actually, check that. One thing. One thing ultimately matters. And what do you think he's referring to? You don't have to be that creative or smart. He's referring to himself, right? Has to be. I'm the only, and we know this in context too because he came to their house and Mary was sitting at his feet and he says, Mary chose the good portion and Mary has figured this out, but you haven't yet. But that's okay, I love you too, Martha. Just remember this. One thing ultimately matters. Does that reflect your spirituality as Christians? Are you a one thing matters kind of emphasizing the right thing and then everything else kind of flows out from that as secondary matters? Or are you a thousand things matters and the gospel is only one of them? That will lead you to such despair. If it hasn't already, I promise you it will. Not only can you not read scripture rightly then, and you'll miss the truth. I mean, practically, man, you're putting so much more on yourself than God is, and it will crush you, crush you. Jesus' death is not an addendum. It's the final twist to the best last chapter to the greatest book ever written. And there's no sequel. And so to come full circle, the story of the Bible is that God was not satisfied with the story of the ark in the Old Testament. Like he wasn't satisfied with Adam being alone in Genesis 2, and so he created Eve. God wasn't satisfied with the lesser word of the old stories that bred separation and curse due to our sin But his plan wasn't to tell us to try harder, but to become himself the greater version of the story. So we would never have to measure ourselves against stories like this ever again. But instead, to see a great love that dove headfirst into the sea of our sin to die that we might live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this story uh, that in a lot of ways um, is a microcosm of the entire biblical story. Um, so many of the stories of the Bible are like that. This is not new. But we thank you for it. Uh, it exists for our benefit. It exists for us to see you in it. It exists for us to find relief um, from life, from burden, from uh, the law's voice, from other, and others' voices that are constantly telling us to do more and to be more and to strive more. But God, help us to rest at your feet um, and to see the one thing that matters. And, and Jesus, we thank you for bearing the curse of this passage too. The, the good news of the Bible is not that there's a bad thing and then Jesus, you come along and say, here's the good thing, though that is true. It's that the way to the good thing is by you becoming the bad thing. It's the scandal of scandals. The Son of God, the perfect, perfect God of light in whom there's no spot uh, or wrinkle or imperfection the holiest being in the universe became sin on a cross that we might in him become the righteousness of God. Uh, God, help us to believe and and to trust you uh, for this truth all our days. In Christ we pray, amen.